0: This is the Urban Astronomer Podcast. Hi there, this is Alan Fathersfeld speaking and you are listening to the 37th episode of the Urban Astronomer Podcast. Before we start, I just want to thank our Patreon supporters for helping me out with small contributions that add up to a good dent in my expenses running the show. Margot, Catherine, Peter and the rest, I really appreciate it. Now, if you listened to the last episode, you would have heard the first in our series of Scopex lectures. Today, we've got the second in the series, which were given at Scopex, South Africa's largest and most important astronomy and telescope making event, a sort of Southern Hemisphere stellophane. The talk you're about to hear was by Tim Cooper, and it's called Drizzle, Showers or Storms How's the Weather Tonight? Tim is a keen observer of comets, meteors and meteorites and has published many records of his observations of these things and has earned a number of awards from the Astronomical Society of South Africa for his scientific contributions over the decades. But before we get there, Clem Unger has recorded another mission update, bringing us up to speed on the latest exciting activity in our efforts to explore the solar system. Hi and
1: welcome to the Mission Update for November 2018 on the Urban Astronomer Podcast. I'm Clem Unger and will be your host for this part of the show. Coming up on Mission Update, we will have a look at current and upcoming missions and launches for November 2018. We also have a look into the problems the boarded Soyuz Mission 57 launch caused for the ISS and why that's the case, as well as why Hubble had a wobble. This and more on the November Mission Update on the Urban Astronomer Podcast. T-minus 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5...
2: All three engines up and burning. Two, one,
1: zero, and liftoff of the Urban Astronomer Mission Update. The highlight of the recent launch activity is without question the boarded launch of Soyuz MS-10, where NASA astronaut Nick Haig and his Russian comrade, cosmonaut Alexei of Chinin Whilst the crew mastered the ballistic re-entry, the apparent failure of one of the four first-stage boosters has thrown a massive spanner in the works of the operation of the ISS. Haig and Ofchinen, where the second half of Expedition 57 would have completed the crew of five astronauts, and with the launch planned activities on the ISS, such as the spacewalk by Haig and his ESA astronaut colleague Alexander Gerst, will have to be postponed indefinitely. Bigger problem for the mission planners is, however, when Soyuz will be given the green light for its next crewed flight to replace the current crew of three on the ISS. The main problem is the spaceworthiness of Soyuz MS-9, which is currently docked at the orbital outpost. Due to the limited lifespan of the hydrogen peroxide which uh, Soyuz uses in the re-entry attitude thrusters, the already problem-plagued spacecraft Remember, it has a hole drilled by some mysterious person. It has a shelf life only until January 2019. And uh, should uh, the Soyuz first stage... Problem not be solved until then, it's decision time in Houston and Moscow. As the ISS flight directors are very risk adverse, uh, possible solutions could include an uncrewed Soyuz replacement, uh, which is capable of auto docking to the ISS and uh, keeping the current crew of three for an indefinite time uh, in orbit, or in the worst case scenario, The crew has to abandon the outpost, uh, come back to Earth with Soyuz MS-9, and the ISS will be operated remotely from the ground up until flights return to normal. And in the media discussed early launch of SpaceX Crew Dragon or the Boeing Starliner has been dismissed by mission managers very early in the piece. And I suppose we have to wait and see what happens. And I'm sure the December mission update on the Urban Astronomer podcast will have some more news for you. Another heartstopper stopper for space-interested Earthbound nerds was the hiccup in the operation of our beloved Hubble Space Telescope. To allow for accurate pointing to its targets, the telescope has a total of six gyroscopes on board, of which three are normally required for operation. All six gyros were replaced during the last Hubble Service Mission 4 by Shuttle Atlantis in 2009. Of the six gyros, three were of an older design with a shorter life expectancy and the last one packed up on October 3rd. When one of the newer backup gyros was powered up, it showed that it was not performing within the required parameters prompting mission managers to put Hubble in a standby mode until the problem could be resolved. Luckily, a running restart of the gyro followed by a series of slewing maneuvers did the trick and cleared an internal blockage and performance was back to nominal. This was widely described in the media as turning Hubble on and off as your local IT guy would do it but I suppose it was a bit more complicated than that. An interesting Hubble trivia fact is that the telescope requires three gyros for normal operation, but is able to perform observations with two or even only one gyro. But the accessible area of the sky is limited and pointing accuracy is not as precise. So as we have to hang on for the long awaited launch for James Webb until mid-2021, trusty Hubble after this wobble has hopefully still some life left. Moving on, one of November's space exploration highlights is NASA's InSight mission, which is scheduled to land on the Red Planet on November twenty sixth. InSight is scheduled to land on the relatively smooth planes of Elysium Planitia, which gives the lander a good chance to find a suitable spot during final approach. The InSight lander is a copy of the proven NASA Phoenix lander that touched down on Mars in 2008 with a different science payload on board. Unlike Curiosity and the Spirit and Opportunity rovers, InSight is a stationary platform that will place its science instruments with a robotic arm on the Martian surface near through the lander. The aim of the mission is to check up on the interior of the Red Planet with a seismometer to detect mass quakes, study the heat flow of the surface via the HP-3 probe that burrows to a de- depth of 5 meters, as well as learn about the size and composition of Mars core with the RISE instrument. The mission duration, provided that the landing goes as planned, is two Earth years. The cool fun fact of the mission is that InSight was launched in tandem with two CubeSats which are travelling behind on its Mars trajectory. They are the first CubeSats at another planet and apart from proof of concept, hopefully we will relay back InSight data as it descends towards the Martian surface. As we all know, landing on Mars is a tricky business, and it's a good idea to keep our fingers crossed for the inside team, as they really don't want to deliver another coffee table for the Martians from the Awesome Astronomy Podcast. And now it's time to move to the sad part of November's mission update, as it's time to say goodbye to two extremely successful NASA missions. First, we need to farewell Dawn that visited Vesta and Ceres, the two largest bodies in the asteroid belt. The 11-year-old mission comes to an end as the spacecraft runs out of hydrazine, the key fuel that enables the spacecraft to point its antenna and communicate with Earth. To ensure to keep the surface of Ceres pristine, the spacecraft will be placed in a high parking orbit around Ceres, where it will remain for decades. The other mission we need to say goodbye to is Kepler. The amazing space telescope that had more comebacks than Frank Sinatra and has found 2,681 confirmed exoplanets plus 2,899 candidates. An amazing mission that has really changed the way we look at the universe. Like Dawn. Kepler has run out of fuel and will remain in a safe orbit trailing the Earth for a very long time to come. But on a positive note, Kepler's successor TESS is about to start its survey of the 200,000 brightest stars near the Sun and looking for new worlds. (laughs) And now let us check in on the progress on the two near-Earth asteroid missions which are currently underway. JAXA's Hayabusa-2 mission is in orbit around 900-meter asteroid Ryugu, and after the successful deployment of a number of service rovers, or better, tumblers, it's scouting for a suitable site for the acquisition of a surface sample. The rugged surface of Ryugu complicates the touchdown sampling maneuver, and it may be some time before we see the first attempt happening. NASA's OSIRIS-REx mission has successfully executed three deep space braking maneuvers and is on final approach to asteroid Bennu. In recent days, the mission team around Principal Investigator Dante Loretta from the University of Arizona have released first detailed images of the macadamia nut-shaped 500-meter asteroid. OSIRIS-REx is scheduled to rendezvous with Bennu on December 3rd. And finally, let us have a brief look at scheduled launches for November and early December 2018. Rocket Lab's first commercial launch of two Limio CubeSats is scheduled for November 11th. After the successful test launch of the two-stage Electron rocket with its controversial disco ball payload, it's now business time for the New Zealand arm of the American Aerospace Company, and hence this is how this mission was named. A supply mission to the International Space Station will launch on November 15th from Wallops Island in Virginia. The uncrewed Cygnus spacecraft will launch on an Antares-230 rocket and will take important supplies to the ISS. On November 29th, a United Launch Alliance Delta IV Heavy will take a classified payload, or in other words a spy satellite, for the US National Reconnaissance Office into orbit. And last but not least in early December on the 8th to be precise the Chinese space agency is launching its Chang'e 4 moon lander and rover on a Long March 3 rocket. Chang'e 4 will be China's second lunar lander and rover and is also the first mission in history to attempt a landing on the far side of the moon. All right, you made it. This was the November 2018 installment of Mission Update on the Urban Astronomer podcast. As always, Urban Astronomer Alan and myself are keen on your feedback and you can contact us via Facebook, Twitter and the Urban Astronomer website. You find the links in the show notes of this podcast. I'm Clem Unger and until next time, fly safe and bye for now.
0: Thank you, Clem. And of course, he'll be back in a short while for our December solstice episode when we give you a brief update on what to expect for the following three months and maybe shoot the breeze about space and stuff. Meanwhile, here is Tim Cooper speaking on meteors and meteor showers at Scopex 2018.
3: Tim Cooper is a specialist in... um Meteors, meteorites, bolides, fireballs, he monitored the whole lot and he's got all sorts of other stuff um, which I might be able to tell you about later. But um, Tim's been doing this for very many years and Tim he's recently had a trip to Botswana to find the bolide, partially successful. And um, Tim, we look forward to what you're going to say. Thank you very much. Thank you.
2: Morning, everybody. So, the title of my talk this morning is Drizzle, Showers or Storms? How's the Weather Tonight? And you can see that there is a question mark. So, how is the weather tonight? Um, Well, if you're going to stay for the star party tonight, uh, there's good news, because this is the synoptic chart for today, and you can see that there's a low pressure off towards the west, but over the uh, whole of the subcontinent, there's rather stable weather, uh, so the prospects are quite good for for clear weather tonight. So the answer to the question showers, uh, storms, uh, there are going to be no storms or showers tonight uh, that we know of. Okay, but uh, when we talk about that weather that you've seen on that synoptic chart, uh, all of that weather takes place basically in a layer which we call the troposphere, uh, which extends up to around about an altitude of about 15 kilometers. So we live in that area. Um, this is uh, supposed to be um, Mount Everest over here, which has, had, which has an altitude of around about 9 kilometres. So that's even within the troposphere, within the area that we experience all this weather. But what about above that? And you can see if you extend the atmosphere upwards, we have at least four layers above the troposphere. Above the troposphere we have the stratosphere going up to around about 50 kilometres. We then have the mesosphere going up to 85 kilometres. And then above the mesosphere we have the thermosphere which goes from around about 85 kilometers up to 500 kilometers and then above the um, thermosphere we have a layer called the exosphere and that extends up to around about 10,000 kilometers and that's the point where basically you cannot recognize uh, the the atmosphere anymore so um we've got our own weather here but there is another weather system which is going on in this area here uh, roughly between the altitude of around about 80 kilometers and 120 kilometers and that's the area where the shooting stars burn up which we call meteors and these often come in um, in showers so if you go out and uh, sit under the sky or any dark night you're sure to see maybe one or two of the shooting stars that's an example there um, and this basically these are sporadic uh, objects and we might call these, um, these objects then uh, meteor drizzle. Um, at certain parts of the year if you're lucky you will experience what's called a meteor shower and then you might see 20 or 30 of these objects coming from a certain part in space. You will know that there is a shower in progress because if you trace these paths backwards they all seem to come from uh, the same part of the sky and that's what we call the radiant of the meteor shower. On very rare occasions, you might experience what we call a meteor storm. And this is a woodcut of the meteor storm in 1833, which resulted from the um, apparition of the Leonid meteors. Um, why do we have a woodcut and not a photograph? Well, simply because uh, this was This particular storm was before the age of photography. So there are no photographs which exist of this particular meteor meteor storm. But uh, basically, um, meteors on this particular night uh, fell at the rate of around about 10 to 20,000 meteors per hour. So this is um, really a meteor storm. Um, The other thing about this, it's a a woodcut, not a photograph. Uh, And of course, this happened before the age of the internet. In those days, they had the uh, carrier pigeon. <laughs> if only life was so simple. Okay, so um, on this particular evening, um, stars were reportedly uh, to have fell like rain. We know, however, that they are not stars. Um, so what are they? And the answer comes from this. This is one of the op- one of the oldest. Uh, remnants from the formation of the solar system. It's a comet. And what you see here basically is the two comet tails. So the nucleus is over here and this comet was called Hale-Bob. It was a comet which um, was very bright in early 1998. Um, And what you see here basically is the two tails coming off of the comet's nucleus. This is the, the gas tail or the iron tail which is formed from the volatile matter in the comet and this particular Uh, colour you get from the ionisation of carbon monoxide in the comet, and then you have this very bright tail here, which is the dust tail of the comet, and this shines by reflecting sunlight. It doesn't give off any light of its own, it actually reflects sunlight. So we have a dust tail, a dust tail and a gas tail, and that gives us clues that comets basically are made up of these frozen ices um, uh, mixed in with dust, and um, this description was what Uh, led the astronomer Fred Whipple to call these objects dirty snowballs. Okay, so looking a little bit more detail about these comets, uh, first of all, in terms of the volatile matter, uh, we find that this particular comet Hellbock was analysed in detail, and for um, the most part you can see that it's made up of water vapour, carbon monoxide and carbon dioxide. These are always the three most prevalent gases in any comet. Um, So for 100 parts of water, you can see that there's 23 parts of carbon monoxide and 6 parts of carbon dioxide. We also see um, uh, smaller amounts of various other um, chemical compounds, so oxygen compounds, sulphur compounds, nitrogen compounds and hydrocarbons. Um, So once again, if we look at the detailed analysis of all the different species which were found in this comet, uh, you can see that there's a wide range of different chemical species, which, when they're far from the sun, they are basically frozen, and these all compr- comprise the ices in the comet. So, once again, you can see water, carbon monoxide, and carbon dioxide. You can see simple hydrocarbons like methane, acetylene, ethane. Um, there is some formaldehyde always formed in comets, and uh, on Earth, we can polymerize formaldehyde to get a, a simple plastic called polyoxymethylene, uh, which is sold under the trade name of acetyl. And um, there is actually uh, polyoxymethylene in comets as well. So they have actually detected that there is plastic in comets. So it's not only that we've got plastic in our oceans, which we put there by the way, there is also plastic in comets. Some other interesting molecules in comets. First of all, we have hydrogen sulfide which uh, the school children here will know as the rotten egg gas in the stink bombs. I'm sure you've made that uh, in the past, if you were naughty like me. So it's hydrogen sulfide, so a comet is a smelly place. We also find things like glycine, which is an amino acid, which is a very important uh, building block in the formation of life. And then we also find things like hydrogen cyanide, which is one of the most toxic substances known to man so hydrogen cyanide and hydrogen isocyanide. In actual fact, uh, hydrogen cyanide was detected in comets already uh, late in the 1800s, and so when Halley's comet came around in 1910, and it was realized that the Earth would pass through the tail of the comet Halley, um, there were some astronomers who predicted that there would be dire consequences as a result of that. And so one report, for example, said warning to the inhabitants of the city, and this I think was in New York, uh, close your windows and keep indoors, for the earth will soon pass through the tail of the terrible comet, and its poisonous gases will fill the heavens. On the other hand, there were some uh, unscrupulous individuals who made money out of this uh, by selling what they called comet pills, uh, which were supposed to ward off the effects of uh, the gases and the dust in Halley's Comet. So Halley's Comet came and it went, it left behind its, its gas, uh, a lot of people got rich out of it, and as far as we know, uh, nobody actually died as a result of passing through the tail of Halley's Comet. Okay, so um, this is a comet nucleus, this is what it looked like, looks like when it's far from the Sun. This is the comet Churyumov-Gerasimenko, discovered by two Russian uh, astronomers, and you can see this is a picture taken from the Rosetta spacecraft, um, and you can see um, this is basically uh, dust and it's, it's held together with these ices and so when it's far from the sun it's a solid object like this. Um, this goes around the sun once every six and a half years and so once every six and a half years uh, the surface becomes depleted and you can see these areas where material has melted and sloughed away as it goes around the sun. Okay, That's another picture of the same comet. uh, While it's far from the Sun, and by now the um, spacecraft was already in orbit around this particular nucleus, waiting for it to switch on. And so what happens is, as the comet in its orbit, and as I said, it goes around the Sun once every six and a half years, so in deep space the um, gases are frozen. As it approaches the Sun and crosses the Earth's orbit here, it starts to come under the influence of sunlight which warms the comet, it melts these ices and then what happens is you get this. So that is the same comet which is now switched on we now have these uh, jets of gas and dust which are being emitted and so what's happening here is it's now um, releasing these dust grains into the uh, orbit behind the comet um, and it's these dust grains and if we pass through those uh, you will see as meteors. So what are these dust grains? So um, the composition of cometary dust, basically, basically it is mainly things like silicates of the elements, calcium, magnesium and iron, um, uh, two minerals particularly called olivine and peroxine. This is olivine and this is peroxine. And so these are typically the types of minerals that you find in comets. We also find some more exotic things, which we call gems, which are just glass embedded with minerals and sulphides, we call those gems. And then there's a complex organic solid material called tron, which is a mixture of or various compounds of carbon, hydrogen, oxygen, and nitrogen. We've managed to collect these uh, particles. So this is, for example, um, a sample from a high altitude aircraft which flies at a very high altitude above the earth. Um, it deposits, or it, it basically, when it's in flight, it puts out a little paddle and on that paddle there is a sticky material called aerogel and uh, as it sweeps up these particles they get embedded within the aerogel and then these can be brought back to Earth and analyzed and put under a scanning electron microscope which is exactly what happens here. So this is a a cometary particle, piece of a a comet, Um, which one we don't know but um, so it was uh, in orbit around the, the Earth and you can see it's a massive aggregate of are the smaller particles and this is typically the size of the particle that you will see when you see a shooting star. And to give you some idea of how big that is, uh, there is a bar there and that bar there is one micron in width. Um, so one micron is there. The width of a human hair, by comparison, is somewhere between 18 and 180 microns. So depending on your age, whether you're fair, you've got fair hair, you've got dark hair, Um, the diameter of your hair will be something from around about 18 to 180 microns so the smallest fair hair people like me when I had hair anyway um, my hair was about 18 microns across so this particle um, is smaller than the diameter of the hairs on my head and that is typically what you see when a meteor comes into the atmosphere So this is a comet which uh, went around in uh, 2007, early 2007. It's Comet Comet McNaught. And you can see that these comets, as they go around the sun, they have the capacity to uh, spray vast amounts of dust into their orbits behind them. This is a picture which was taken by amateur astronomer uh, Simon Walsh. We went down to Paris in the Free State. So he took this picture. Uh, The comet is here. And what you see here is individual streamers Material as this comet was ejecting uh, matter into space over time. So this is a period of around about one day. Uh, This is two days. This is three days. So there is about four or five days of dust uh, in that tail there which has been sprayed by the comet. So uh, this is over a very, very vast area. So if you were uh, the Earth now passing through this debris stream, uh, we would get very nice meteor showers. Uh, As we pass through each of these individual filaments, you would see the rate of meteors go up and then come down, go up and come down. Unfortunately, this particular comet, we don't encounter its orbit, so we don't get a meteor shower from this particular comet. But one comet that we do is Comet Halley. Uh, This is a picture of Comet Halley's nucleus, which was taken from the Giotto spacecraft in 1986, and you can see these jets of material which are spraying dust into its path. So, here you have the orbit of the the comet around the Sun uh, intersecting with the orbit of the Earth. First of all, uh, in early May, the first week of May, uh, we intersect the orbit of Halley's comet and we get what's called the Eta aquarian meteor shower. Uh, A few months later, we cross that orbit again uh, in late October and then we get uh, what's called the Orionid meteor shower. So, uh, Halley is one of the few comets which actually We cross its its orbit twice in a year. Most comets, we only get one shower um, per year. Uh, The question is, uh, if these are meteors from comet Halley, why are they not called the Halleyids? Why are they called the Eta Aquariids? Or are they called the Orionids? And the answer is to be found in this slide here. So this is typically what you would see if you were um, sitting outside in early May just before dawn and looking towards the the east Um, we have the constellation over here of Aquarius Um, over here is Cygnus the Swan and um, I can't quite see it from here but anyway so what we have here is we have, uh, I've represented four meteors by these arrows, Uh, what happens now is if we trace the path of these meteors backwards there's a point at which they intersect. So, if we take that away and represent that, that is the radiant of the Eta Aquarius. And it just so happens that it comes very close to the star Eta Aquaria. So, these meteor showers are basically named not after the comet which spawned them, but after the constellation from which they emanate. So, this is the Eta Aquarius, and they come from very close to the star Eta Aquaria. Um, there are a few meteor showers which we see each year. Uh, so we see, for example, the Eto we've just mentioned, they give us a shower in the first week of May. Uh, the Perseids in August, uh, we get a, quite a nice shower every year from those. Also from the Orionids, which is coming up uh, in October. Uh, the Taurids they give us a, rather a drizzle than a shower, and every now and again, roughly every 12 years, uh, they give us quite a nice shower. The Leonids, uh, currently they are drizzle levels and every 33 years we get storm from the Leonids. Um, That happened last in 1999, uh, 2000 thereabouts, so in 2032 we can expect once again storm levels of the Leonids. And then our strongest uh, meteor shower of the year is the Geminids. They happen, uh, they're at their peak on the morning of uh, December 13 and 14. They give us a strong shower each year and that appears to be getting stronger and stronger every year as well so that's um, one two three four five six or seven showers there um, in actual fact though there are far more than that uh, we have in the working list of the international astronomical union currently 790 different meteor showers many of them waiting to be confirmed so this is basically a plot of all of the meteor radiance that exist uh, basically in the northern hemisphere and on the equator. So the equator is here. And every single dot that you see there is the orbit which has been determined for a meteor coming into the atmosphere. And that's been done basically by taking images of these cameras... Uh, taking images of these meteors with two cameras separated by a few kilometers apart and then we can triangulate the positions and work out the orbits. And that gives us these uh, particular um, radians. So this is the path of the, uh, the plane of the ecliptic, so there are a lot of showers in the plane of the ecliptic but you can also see there are a lot of meteor showers which uh, come from the Oort cloud which are in the northern hemisphere. Uh, so does that mean that there's nothing in the, northern, in the southern hemisphere because we see here there's no radiance down here uh, in the southern hemisphere. Um, the answer to that is no, it's just that at this stage all of these uh, cameras are in the northern hemisphere uh, nobody's been doing this type of work in the Southern Hemisphere and that's what we're busy remedying at the moment. So we are at the moment putting in uh, a series of or network of cameras at two stations. There will be 16 cameras and we're going to uh, start to map these uh, meteor from the Southern Hemisphere as well. So that's typically the output from these cameras. These are all images of meteors or shooting stars which have been taken from these cameras you can see that there are stars uh, on all of these frames as well and because we know the positions of these cameras and also we know accurately the positions of the stars we can work out exactly what the trajectories are of these uh, meteors and that enables us to then determine the orbit of the meteor on the image. And hopefully in the next uh, uh, few months uh, when this uh, network in South Africa comes online we're going to start to fill in the gaps of all the meteor showers and we will have then basically a complete coverage or a complete synoptic map of the um, heavens and where these meteor showers occur. So to come back to uh, this one that's the, w- that's the weather for today. Um, you get these uh, synoptic charts maybe three or four days in advance Uh, after that it becomes rather difficult to predict what the weather on on the lower atmosphere is going to do. Um, If we look at the situation with the upper atmosphere, with these meteor showers, uh, this is typically what we can expect and we can predict these very accurately. In fact, we have, um, um, for example, with the Iter Aquarius, we have uh, actually backtracked um, and we know exactly when these particles left the comet. Uh, with an accuracy of around about uh, half an hour compared to when they were released from the comet maybe thousands and thousands of years ago. So we can predict these meteor shells with great accuracy. So the ones that are coming up for the rest of this year, first of all we have in late October the Orionids. Uh, they form quite a nice shell, once again the remnants of Comet Halley. Unfortunately the date of their maximum on the 22nd of October it's very close to the, to the full moon. On the 24th. Uh, they were followed then in November by the weak activity from the Taurids, the south, southern Taurids, the northern Taurids, and then the Leonids. The Leonids now back down to their drizzle levels and they will then come back to storm levels in the next uh, 30 years or so. There is a potential for a storm activity this year from the Alpha Monoceratids. This is a shower which has only been observed four times in the past in 1925 and 35, and then again in 1985 and 1995 and there is a potential that once again this um, may undergo a storm this year again unfortunately it corresponds with the time of full moon but obviously with such an important event we will defi- definitely be watching to see if anything happens um, then uh, we come to December there are a number of minor showers here But we then have the Geminids, which is our most reliable meteor shower. Um, It's getting stronger and stronger each year. If you observe the shower on the morning of um, December 13 and 14, uh, you are pretty certain to see um, 60 or 70 meteors in an hour. Um, You can see that its rise is uh, more slow to the maximum, and then after maximum it drops off very, very quickly. So that is a real effect, it's not an artefact. So by all means uh, go, out, go out and have a look at these showers. Um, you really need to get yourself under a dark sky. Uh, otherwise you will only pick up the um, faint uh, you won't pick up the, the fainter meteors. So that is a dark sky. If you're observing under conditions like that um, where you have washed out all of the Milky Way and these fainter stars uh, you will also wash out the fainter meteors and therefore you will only see the brighter objects. And that's typically what we are doing. So this problem of light pollution is becoming a great one, particularly for us meteor astronomers. Um, and you can see here the different uh, urban centers where the uh, problem are, problems are. Uh, this is so uh, on the Vetuatas right here in Gauteng. Uh, you can see my neighbor's floodlights there too. Um, I have tried to get him to put them off, but he won't. Um, And uh, unfortunately, as a result of that, the only place where it's worse is here on the the banks of the Nile. Um, You can also see here that uh, the number of spaces in in South Africa where we really have dark skies is starting to, to diminish. So we really need to all take responsibility and do something about this. So if you want to watch meteors, um, and I do watch meteors quite successfully here from from Kempton Park, Um, so I'm sort of on the edge of this area where it starts to get particularly bad. Um, If you're here towards the centre of Joburg, um, you've got no chance. Uh, So if you really want to see uh, meteors, uh, get yourself outside to one of these areas and you can start to look these uh, maps up, these light pollution maps are available online So if you want to know if you're in a good area to look at meteors, you can find your location on these maps and this will tell you exactly uh, what the light pollution levels are around you. Okay, so um, that's basically it. So I've said to you that uh, the weather for today, uh, there's going to be no showers uh, up to an altitude of around about uh, 10 or 15 kilometres. But remember, that's not the only weather that's on the go. Uh, there's always this weather in the form of shooting stars as well. Thank you very much.
3: Thank you very much, Tim. It was interesting. Are there any questions? Yes, sir.
1: That one where you show 760 uh, meteors that have been tabulated in other places, I see them in different colours. Is that that the actual colours of the meteors as well? No.
2: No, that, those colours are just uh, for effect so that you can separate. So you can you can then see every, every um, colour there will belong to a, a specific shower. So the Geminids, for example, will all be orange, and it's just to show that they are Geminids and differentiate the different showers. Any others? Yes.
3: Um, with that meteor um, with you can see the both together.
1: Would they have
3: been visible or is it sort of a composition?
2: It is that it that proud would light up? Uh, the, the one with the with The woodcut. The woodcut? Wood yeah. Yes, the chances are they would have um, because um, we had a storm from that shower again in starting in 1998, 1999. So it comes every 33 years. So it was 1833, 66, 99, 1932, 1966 there was a storm. And the next one was predicted in 1999, and the year before that, in 98, we were taken by surprise by what was called the Leonid Fireball night, where all of these particles were very large particles, so they were very, very bright. Um, and Venus, if you look at Venus, it has a, a magnitude of around, around about minus four. Venus, by, on its own, can cast shadows under dark skies. So you had the situation where you had all of these meteors, these fireballs, and they were around about magnitude minus 8, minus 9. So each individual meteor was able to cast a shadow. Now with this meteor storm, you had 10,000 to 20,000 per hour. Um, so it, it literally was enough to light up the landscape. How widely was this great
0: northern hemisphere or southern hemisphere?
2: Uh, any anybody that was dark would have been able to see that, but um, it's a northern hemisphere shower, um, and so in, the best place to see it is in the northern hemisphere. In the southern hemisphere, the radiant only rises about two hours before dawn, so we would have from here we would have only seen that for the last two hours before dawn, and then it would have been too light.
3: Which guy made that uh, wind cut? What country?
2: Uh, not quite sure. Um, Austria, Norway, Norway. I don't know. Um, that Halebop uh, core, how big was that uh, picture that you showed? Uh, well, the, the nucleus of Khomei Hale-Bopp was about 40 kilometers 40 in. Yeah. But peak. the but the tile is millions. Yes,
3: millions in of kilometers.
1: Any more questions? When these things burn up, what is the combustion product? What comes down to the
3: earth? Ash. And how much per day?
2: 10,000 tons. <laughs>
3: No, we're putting on weight
2: on a daily basis. Um, Actually, we're not. It's actually in balance. So we get hit by about ten thousand tons a day, and we lose about the same from from volatile gases like oxygen, nitrogen, which actually is at the edge of the exosphere, and then those particles get carried out into space. So, so the mass of the Earth is actually pretty much constant. Oh,
3: good. Good Thank you. Yes, sir. Now and again,
1: when I get up and top to my roof to go and paint it, it's full of stones. And I used to think it was my neighbors throwing rocks at uh, But I think that it's actually coming from outer space because it's a lot of very small ones. And some of them are magnetic. Are those actual meteors or what?
2: I doubt it. I'm very much doubting it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think that's probably just stuff which gets. From, from daily human activities, you know, get suspended and, and carried up exactly that. So it gets carried up on the wind and then deposited on, on, your, uh, on your roof. I doubt that's
3: meteorite. Well, If there's no more questions, then, then I have a, a job to do as President of the ASSA. And at the AGM of the Astronomical Society of Southern Africa, Tim was awarded the Overbeek Medal. This is a medal which has recently been created in honour of Don Elferbeek, who was a renowned astronomer observer in South Africa. And uh, the medal is for the amateur member the member of the ASSA who's done a remarkable amount of observing for high standards. So I'll read out his citation. Um, Tim has been a long-standing member of the ASSA having been awarded a long service award in two thousand and eight, along with honorary membership in two thousand and five, and a president's award in two thousand and six. His main interest is in comets, meteors and asteroids, and he has made significant contributions to our understanding of these objects through his meticulous observations and detailed recordings of a large number of these events. They have been published frequently in Manasseh, which is the Journal of the Astronomical Society, and other publications both nationally and internationally. His presentation in a recent SA symposium in 2018, where he described participation of the camera for All Sky Meteor Surveillance, which he talked about just now. Um, network in conjunction with the City Institute <coughs> is one of the more significant papers at the symposium. CAMS aims to detect meteor streams from potentially hazardous comets, and this clearly demonstrates his capacity to develop an observation, observing equipment and its ability to collaborate internationally. His recent outstanding efforts as a part of the team tracking down the bollard over Botswana has given the ASSA a prominent standing internationally after press briefing in Khabarun, Botswana, highlighting the details of this remarkable event to be published in Manasseh. I can think of no more deserving candidate than Donnie then of the Overbeek Award than Tim Cooper. And we're very fortunate today in that we've got um, Downing be his daughter and son here tonight to make a presentation to Tim. So Tim, would you please come and collect the medal for Margaret. And roll down, much Thank you.
0: And that's the second of our Scopex Talks. If you liked it, please consider subscribing in iTunes or on Google Podcasts or whatever app you use to fetch your podcasts. Just head on over to urban-astronomer.com and find the podcast subscribe button that best suits how you listen to podcasts. If you're up for it and you've got a minute or two to spare and you'd like to help grow the show, why not also leave a rating and a review or, even better, share the subscribe link with your friends and family. And if you'd like to help cover costs, all you need to do is click the Patreon link, again on the Urban Astronomer website, and pledge a few dollars. Next episode, we'll be playing the third of the Scopex recordings, this one by Dr. Peter Kotze of the South African National Space Agency, and we'll see if we can finish up our physics lesson on the life cycle of a star, from gas cloud to black hole. But until then, thank you for listening. Clear skies. skies.